Slightly Unbalanced, we are still queer as folk. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Today, we're talking about episode 10 of season 5, and it's called I Love You. It first aired in the U.S. on July 17, 2005. It was written by Del Shores, his final episode. He wrote eight episodes and produced 41. I Love You was directed by Kelly Macon, his 10th of 11 episodes. He also directs the series finale. Matt, that's only three episodes away. We're almost there. We started this podcast, what, three years ago? Uh, Three, three and a half years ago? (laughs) Yeah. We went and got food at like uh was it was a big bowl uh i think it was italy wasn't it italy or italy it was one of those places it was definitely downtown and you know just what came up with this idea it was big bowl and then we went to italy and had a, another bottle of wine and we got sloshed because why not exactly <laughs> <laughs> we'd like a plate of cheese and another bottle of wine <laughs> thank you Here is the synopsis of I Love You. The lives of every character are rocked by an anti-Proposition 14 sentiment that culminates in a Babylon fundraiser being targeted with a bomb. That's pretty much it. Babylon explodes. There's really only one story going on here. Babylon is bombed. The last episode, we talked a little bit about how thick it was with runners and how much of the stories were being wrapped up and a couple new runners were started to set the stage for this episode. It's really a big turning point in the series and this is going to start a sprint to the finish line for these characters. Uh, before we get started though, did you uh, notice that uncomfortable moment when Debbie used the word tranny in a really, really awful way? No, I want you boys to go. There's no point in all of this, Missy. Oh. Are you sure? Yeah, I'll be there as soon as Kiki gets her tranny ass here. I love you. Yes, this was that that moment we were not quite at that turning point where uh, folks were a lot more vocal in the use of that word, and in terms of how derogatory it is. Uh, I mean, at this, you know, you would still have RuPaul's Drag Race still using that. You've got she male uh, for six seasons after. <laughs> even this show uses it um, before they went with something else. And uh, it's it obviously was not part of a larger conversation in terms of the correct, respectable way to describe someone who is transgender. I don't know. It's, we, we talked about this before, too, with, uh, I think, Christian Suriano said the hot tranny mess line on Project Runway. Mm-hmm. And that was what I remember to be kind of the mainstream kickoff of that where that word became a don't you dare word Mm -hmm. i just hate hearing debbie say it so like even if it's 15 years later circumstances have changed it's like ooh, it's like debbie Uh, it's a tough one that's what's right and that's something that's very interesting about what would happen if this show were to move forward with a reboot or continuation the way something like tales of the city did where they had cisgendered actor olympia olympia dukakis playing a trans character from when the show was originally produced in the 90s to when netflix rebooted it last year and they still had Olympia Dukakis, but still but did a an interesting way of doing a backstory on that character when they first arrived in San Francisco, but had that younger version of her played by a trans actor. And I was like, Mm. okay, that's an interesting reconciliation to acknowledge, like, this is why we still have this person playing this role, but here's how we are going to acknowledge the way going forward. So yeah, I'll be be very interested to see if Queer Folk ever does something like that if rebooted. So everybody's story uh, is intersecting with this bombing, and I broke the episode out into really just... uh, one A story, and that's the bombing, and then a single runner, which I thought was important because we saw an evolution of Melanie and Lindsay and their relationship in this particular episode. So we're going to present this episode a little bit differently and give the backstory leading up to the event for all the characters, and we won't break them out into individual stories, Uh, and then we'll cover the bombing sequentially. So the anti-Prop 14 parade rolls by as the gang is putting up uh, flyers and posters along Liberty Avenue. Protect our children. Protect Christian values. Vote yes on 14. Stop the homosexual agenda. Protect our children. Vote yes on 14. There's something rather quaint about that scene. It reminds me of 
that small handful of people in Chicago that come out every pride parade and protest while being surrounded by like literally Over a, million a million people. people. Yeah. <laughs> There's just something yes. quaint about them and their signs. Everybody wants to get a selfie with them and their, their, their hate signs. Right. 15 years later, it, it seems like we don't see like the people with the bullhorns quite so much in, at least in major cities, like the guy uh, in this episode rolling by in the car, hollering at people, talking about how they're going to go to hell and things like that. And I guess that's why I found this a little quaint, not quite nostalgic, but those people are definitely still out there. But I think in 2005, it just seemed much more jarring and prevalent. In this episode, we get the scary music almost when these people roll up. But nowadays, it just seems like they roll up. We're just like, eh, fuck you. That's it. Yeah. And first of all, I was sad that there was not an opportunity to somehow fit in a more haunting version of Before the Parade Passes By from Hello, Dolly. So I was sad about that. Then also the fact that you have Deb, who is usually amazing at quips and comebacks, that the best thing that she came up with against the pro prop 14 people was Jesus thinks you stink. Right. <laughs> really, Good one. Deb? That's the best you could come up with. Yeah. Ooh, you got them there. Ooh, burn. Well, do you remember um, the pink posse used to go after people? So we've seen this before where people come by in cars and they yell out homophobic things that are heroes. And then Justin and Cody like went after them. They stopped the car. They dragged the guy out of the car, took his pants off. And I, I think that was all they did. Chased him away. For maybe. that first group, for that first group. Yes, it was. It was just like the pants off, which was you know, a salty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this time it's you stink. <laughs> you stink. So I think Cody was ahead of his time with his pink posse. Would have been great if yes. he showed back up in this episode or something. I mean, that would have been actually like very prevalent if the Pink Posse would have had a resurgence because of right. something so something as big as this strong of anti-gay legislation. So the hotel that they're going to have their fundraiser at pulls the plug. Corporate just called. They're not going to let you hold the event here. Let's just say there's a couple of very large accounts corporate's afraid of alienating. By having an event, they might be perceived as gay-friendly. Look, I support what you're doing 100%. I've been in a relationship for 15 years. I want to protect that. But I also have to protect my job. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't like this hotel manager. He said something that kind of irked me, which was, I also have to protect my job. That's a rea That was a reality, though. Well, I thought it was a weird statement. I thought it was sad. He's like... I have to still live. But it casts him as the bad guy here, which I don't think he was supposed to be. All he had to say was, the decision was made by corporate. It's out of my hands. It's not like I have to protect my job. Well, I think he wanted to make it clear that, like you said, this wasn't a decision that he came to or decided or you know decided against helping them. He would do anything to help them. But does he then have, like he has to deci decide between his livelihood or this cause and it, it's a sad thing that that has to be a decision he has to come down to but that seems like a no-win situation right it's like he, he's not going to be able to keep his job right. if he goes against this so i don't know it just seemed to just kind of like out of place all of a sudden he didn't look like an ally or anything and not not everybody needs to be a combatant nor can everybody in well, struggles well, like exactly. this exactly exactly no not everyone can and that was the position he was put in that's why i didn't see him as like the bad guy in the situation. He's just like, he, he was giving them what is a very sad reality and they can't really hold it against him personally. They can absolutely hold it against say the corporate, the owners of the hotel say like, Oh, you put one of your employees in this position to choose between who he is and a living. And sure. also this is, this is a, you know, we're going to lead into a recession too. So <laughs> like nothing is good here. Well, it's a, it's kind of a minor blip this character was, but it was enough for me to think, uh, why doesn't Melanie do some lawyer shit on this company? She just kind of was like, oh, okay, can't have it here. Well, we're 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 screwed. She well, rolled also, over more like, than keep, the guy did. Well, and I keep wondering. Uh, okay, so they're trying to have it at this hotel. How big is this event that they're planning for, and is the LGBT center too small for it? Like, how big of an event are they really planning? And you know, I guess that's why I'm like, why did they go out to try and have it at this hotel ballroom? 
Yeah, that's a very good point because that ballroom is huge. And they had said earlier that they only had 300 tickets. So you're right. There are many other venues that they could have the event at. Yes. Like, and obviously much more queer friendly venues. And so, yeah, I questioned about, because we've seen how they have these town halls at the, the LGBT center all the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, Ben sure works at a, Ben works at a university. Don't they have a room that he could use as a faculty right? member? Some sort of lecture professor? hall, a gym. I mean, something. Yeah. Okay. So Babylon would be a great place to have the event. But why did Michael have to be the one to go ask Brian about it? Because it appears that Emmett, Ben, Melanie, and Michael are on this like planning committee. They are the co-chairs. So why not have one of them ask Brian, you know, one of them who doesn't have an active ongoing feud with Brian or one of them that didn't say, I never want you in my life again. I won't waste too much of your time. That's good. Because I don't have too much to offer. And I'll get right to the point. The point being, you want something? Yes. Wouldn't happen to be to apologize, would it? I believe it's you who owes me that. I already offered, you refused. Because you didn't mean a goddamn word. But that's not why you're here. <clears throat> we lost Le Montage for the benefit. Stop, Prop 14. Why did it have to be Michael? The guess is as good as mine. Is that, I mean, is that their way of trying to force the reconciliation? Which, at this point, let them move on from each other. Stop trying to force anything to, like, come back. Yeah, I mean, the goal <laughs> is to make it come back naturally. But this was a very, like, unnatural way to bring it back. Mm -hmm. It was just manufactured. And that shit just drives yes. me crazy in TV. One question, though. Uh, Michael said that Brian didn't mean what he said as an apology. Why does he think that, though? Because Brian said everything he could have except that magical, I'm sorry, phrase that we talked about last episode. It's like he, he got as close as Brian Kinney is going to get. To an apology and let him live his life the way he wants to. But for Michael, that's not enough. Even if someone does everything but bend over backwards to say to do those things, to apologize, it's not enough for Michael because he's a petty little bitch. <laughs> Golly. <laughs> That's what he is. We we've seen it the entire season that that's how he's gonna act. So yeah, there was there was never going to be any anything that Brian could do or say to show that you know what, live your life and and leave it at that. It's not an operational linguistic thing. It's because he just simply doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to believe yeah. it. He's cast he Brian want to have as to forget. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to have to forgive. Let's talk about Ted and his husband candidate real quick. It's still unexplained uh, when and why Ted shifted from being the village hoe to looking for a husband. Oh, yeah. He's hot. Schmidt, what did I tell you about playing with yourself during office hours? <sighs> Fuck it, Brian. Relax, Theodore. This isn't work chapters. You're in a jerk-off friendly environment. I wasn't jerking off. I'm on my quest for a husband. The latest homo to join the rank of defectors. I mean, was it was it the pity fuck that made him reevaluate everything? Was it, I, was it seeing Michael and Ben? I, I'm. I kind of liked him as the village hoe. I like that new dimension to Ted. I like Ted finally finding what I guess he was looking for all along, like way back to season one. Yeah, he because he he sort of he always kind of idolized Brian and yeah. and his charm and he borrowed his, his loft once to try to yeah so. <laughs> You you have reached it. You are, I think, Brandon was never the threat. I think Ted was the threat, <laughs> as I said in the last episode. So it's really great to see Ted get every piece of ass that he could yeah. possibly have wanted. And I'm like, why aren't you um, going out and just enjoying yeah. it? Yeah, love it. <laughs> His first date with Lewis was just about everything you're not supposed to do on a first date, and I love that. Anyway, there was a stampede. I got trampled. It's terrible. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty terrifying. In fact, I, I still get nervous being in a, a crowd. Well, uh, how about a real date? Great. I, uh, I just bought two tickets to the Stop Prop 14 benefit Thursday night, Cindy Lauper's performing. I, I, I'd love to, but... Uh... Crowds, right. Um, well, some other time. No. No, wait. 
My therapist says it's important I stare down my demons, so that's what I'm going to do. Lewis is talking about being trampled at a Danny Bonaducci appearance with the Partridge family. He talks about being in therapy, how to work out all of his problems. It's like, you don't say that on your first date. (laughs) Yeah. I would be like, you need, I would, that's definitely a moment of, I think you still need to work on yourself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Peace out. Let's split the check. (laughs) That said, I mean, I would say that, that husband search site, I'm all for being taken care of. So, I was like, I'm sorry. How is Richard doing with his law firm? Is he much more lawyer than Melanie is? Because that's (laughs) good enough for me. He wants to cuddle after a long day. Done. Well, after hearing all of Lewis's like problems with crowds and everything, Ted's first move is to invite him to a crowded event. (laughs) It's like, dude. Uh, Read the room. Yeah. Have have a couple more one-on-one walks in the park first. It's like. Yes. I did like Hi, it though. I want to take you to a big crowd. <laughs> yeah, I oh I did too. I I was like, okay, if, if this is the vibe Ted is going for, yeah, go for it. At the event, Ted's uh, leading him around, and Lewis is just like this jittering wreck. I think if that was my first date, I would like slip out the back door of the venue, be like, this is yeah, too, I'm too much. To the, I'm gonna go ahead head to the bathroom and then <laughs> gone. Yeah, like that because yeah, that can be a lot. If this is someone who is like currently going to therapy to deal with this kind of fear maybe start small right i i I mean ted was like shepherding him around and he was very kind and tender and i was like dude this is your first date it's like why are you so like into this protect mode already Mm -hmm. Uh, so leading up to uh the explosion there was some drew boyd action So there's this Brown athletics crisis. Leo Brown just heard about Drew Boyd. He wants another spokesman for his underwear line. Did you tell him that we've already booked a photo shoot? That the ad space has already been paid for? He said, that's your problem. But if you don't find someone else, you'll have a bigger one. This doesn't seem like much of a crisis to Kinetic, though. Uh, Emmett, of course, is defending Drew because Drew pounds him. Uh, But I don't think he really had any cause to get this upset. I don't know how you can be so fucking heartless. 45. If you had any idea how hard this has been for him, he's lost everything. I can't help that. You didn't have to fire him. This is a business, not a support group. And if president, CEO, whatever the fuck you call yourself, happens to be gay. So tell me, how can you cave to such blatant homophobia? The client wants a different model. So Brian's going to do his job. Like, Anybody would, right? Exactly. I don't think uh, I would have dropped the client over something like this if the client says we want a different model. You got it. (laughs) This ties even into the situation with the hotel clerk. You are asking Brian to do something that is either going to possibly destroy his business. So now you have another queer person who's going to be in need or do this change because Brian's hands are tied. Like his entire fight, like Brown Athletic is what was saving Brian's business. And so if you're asking him to drop what he said, a $20 million account. Oh, I had a note about that too. You can't be mad at Brian for having to make this choice. Brian's not the one being forced to make this choice. He's being, sorry, Brian is being forced to make this choice, but this was put upon him by his client. Yeah, and I think there's some things where you want to draw the line on it, but this just didn't seem to rise to that level. It's like, so what if Brown Athletics wants a different client or a different model, I mean? So mm-hmm. I did want to mention the props team here real quick. And we haven't commented on props in quite some time, at least since uh, Tanya Lemke left the show way back in season, end of season two-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Drew's hotel room, there was a bottle of ibuprofen on his nightstand. That's exactly what a pro football player would have in his room because, you know, you play football, you get hurt. Right. You get beat up, knocked around. Uh, Bob Blair was the prop supervisor for this episode. What I liked is that he put some thought into staging a pro football player's room. I like that detail. I don't know why I bumped on that. I was looking at the the nightstand. I was like, he's got Advil over there. That's a great touch. I was too busy looking at Drew. So, yeah, go on. Well, the other thing, too, is it's like, when did Drew move into a hotel anyway? Right. I guess he could no longer hide out at uh, Debbie's. Or did Sierra kick him out of that house that they used to have together? I don't know. No, so all of a sudden he's in a hotel. I'm assuming Sierra. I'm assuming Sierra got everything in that house. Well, also, I mean, it's like you you know you're going to be at the house, and that's exactly where all the paparazzi is going to be. So you're hiding out wherever you can. Good point. 
he's probably going hotel to hotel to mm-hmm. yeah keep him off his tail. Drew did say something that I thought was really odd. Brian fired you? I've now officially lost everything. I knew it wouldn't be easy coming out, but I never expected it would be this bad. Uh, but sure he did, because he worried about this from the very first time that Emmett suggested he come out after their first hookup. So he knew this all along, that it was next to impossible for him to come out without it being a big deal. So I don't know where he forgot that and is at all surprised by the storm of paparazzi and reporting and being suspended, that type of thing. He knew this was coming. Had to have. It's very true. The thing I bumped on was his comment about how he did not want to be the new gay poster boy. Too late. (laughs) Right. But also, it made me wonder, like, does this become his duty to be that just because he had he previously already had so much public exposure being a pro athlete? Mm. Like, is, is that really... Does he now have to be that person, to be, especially in a moment where there is this legislation coming out and you see how people are reacting to someone who is as well known being gay? Is that is that what he now has to serve as or is he allowed to say, that's who I am now? Leave me the fuck alone. Like who gets to determine that? It kind of reminds me of Johnny Weir. Remember when Johnny Weir first came on to the Olympics and everybody was like, this guy's got to be gay. And at the time, he was, like, very ambiguous about it. Mm-hmm. Now look at him. And now he's, he, he's absolutely loving being the one of the queerest people you could possibly <laughs> see on television. I love watching him with Tara Lipinski. I love their outfits, too. That could be Drew Boyd. Yep. So the writers had to have a way to get Brian out of town so that he can rush back to town. Uh, so he's off to gay Mardi Gras in Sydney. Uh, but first he has to top an Australian man who looked like Probably the worst bottom ever. Yeah. First of all, I don't see how that position is really comfortable. Like you're holding. I. Yeah. It was like, okay. <laughs> I did like that. Brian was on his third condom though. Another great uh, prop moment there. When they pan down to his phone, uh, there's three unwrapped condoms down there. Condom wrappers. Mm-hmm. So there's a cute little scene with Brian and Justin as well. Justin's out on the street. He's putting up posters. This was kind of good setup for Justin getting uh, kind of like wrecked in the explosion. My note was that it was like the rom-com version of the meet cute before something is going to happen. Only in this case, it's something bad that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, will I see you there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was cute. I liked it. Mm Mm-hmm. And Justin looked cute there for some reason. I don't know why. I think they cuted him up for this episode, said he looked more lovable. Angelic. Yes. Before they blew him up, yeah. So Jennifer and Tucker are, of course, going to be uh, at the event. I love that scene with Tucker and Jennifer at the club, but geez, Justin, it's like, get over this already. Oh, shit. My mother just arrived with her boy toy. So soap opera. So menopausal. So humiliating. Hello, darling. Mm. Ah. <laughs> Somehow she seems to perceive it differently. Mm. You remember Tucker? Ah, yeah. Hey, Pachiga. How you doing? Hi, Justin. I'm gonna get a drink. Uh, Chardonnay, honey? Perfect. Well, by the look on your face, I should have ordered a sour apple martini. Did you have to bring him? Does he embarrass you? Frankly, yes. Grow up. I'm sorry. They look real cute together. Is they that what do. you're actually jealous of? I know. That she managed to hold on to her, man. I don't know. I'm just saying. I mean, it was kind of like startling to see Tucker deep tonguing, I guess we'll call it Jennifer. It was like, oh, we've we've not seen Jennifer in these situations before. Good for her. <laughs> That's all I'm I yeah, I the amount of times he keeps going on, like, it's embarrassing. I'm like, shut up. We'll be back with more Still Queer as Folk. We're almost done with Liberty Avenue, but this fall, we're back. Back where it all started. The original Queer as Folk, UK. I was just a shag. I knew that. I suppose I fell in love a bit. Like you do. I thought, I'll never see him again. How was I to know? Stuart Allen Jones. Six months later, he was begging me to stay. 
still queer as fuck. Well, told you about that, did they? Slowly. Can I see you again? You can see me now. Nathan, where have you been? Piss off. Oh, now, your little friend. I could meet you tonight. God knows where I'll be tonight, you know? I could be anywhere. I could be an Ipswich. Come on, boys, give us a kiss. I'll give you a good <laughs> fuck, you tight little virgin. You won't be laughing then. We can go in now, Stuart. Just shut your face and drive. Can I see you, though? Oh, you'll see me, all right. You can't miss me. Say a fond goodbye to Brian, Michael, and Justin, and meet Stuart, Vince, and Nathan. Join us starting December 4th as we take on Queer as Folk UK and 10 special episodes of Still Queer as Folk. Uh, so we're coming up on the bombing here. So moments before the bombing happens, uh, Emmett introduces Cindy Lauper. Uh, she starts her number up. Ted asks Michael to get some water for his uh, agoraphobic husband material guy named Lewis, uh, thusly putting Michael squarely in the line of fire of the bomb. It was almost like Ted said, Michael, go stand by the bomb. For dramatic effect, yes. Uh, I was digging this low-budget Cindy Lauper performance, though. It was almost, it seemed almost like a drag performance, but Kelly Macon's directing made it look great. This was that time in, like, that early aughts where I think we were seeing a lot of those divas coming out with these really high-tech sounding dance numbers. Yeah. You know, you have, like, Cher coming out with, like, Believe and... Uh, you know, I think at this point, even like Jennifer Lopez was coming out with On the Six and shit like that. And everything is like very much like, oh, this is supposed to be like that techno that you can really dance to. Uh, I love that these people managed to book Cindy Lauper. Yeah, I mean, th- she had to have been the biggest guest star that Queer Folk ever pulled. I just thought her number was a little low budget for somebody like that. I mean, she really sold 50 was. million records. She has like what, like three of the EGOT. She has, uh, she has the Tony. She has Grammy. I don't think she has an Oscar yet. Uh, maybe she has an Emmy. We'll have to check. Yeah, I know I, she has. She's got three she, of the four. She, yeah. Yes, because she definitely. I know she has a Grammys and she won the Tony for winning for writing the score to Kinky Boots, and she was the first solo um, female composer to win that award. The song she was uh, performing is called Shine, and this was specially remixed just for this episode of Queer as Folk. And it became kind of something of a club classic in 2005. Oh. It's a Shine, the Babylon remix. I guess if all of these, you know, gay bars are playing the show. Yeah, I like the song. I, I hadn't heard it in a while, and I was like, I can get into this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to listen to this in the car tomorrow. <laughs> so, big moment. Uh, the Babylon bomb goes off uh, in a blinding flash of light. At first, I thought that this was like a really bad, like low budget special effect bomb. But then there was that quick cut to Debbie on the street, mm-hmm. just about being knocked off her feet. And I thought that was great editing. So maybe they didn't have enough money to completely blow up the entire club. So they took this approach where you don't actually see the bomb, but you know that it just happened based on what you see Debbie doing on the sidewalk. And it, it, it really makes the impact much harder on the viewer because then it's up to you to fill in how bad this was and to know that she was out so far away from the street and felt it how horrible was it for those who were inside the club right and yeah so and so then to finally get our reveal of it uh i thought was that was very very smart filmmaking yeah, I liked it. I was glad Kelly Macon was directing this episode. So there's been some other Queer Folk directors that probably would have kind of wrecked this scene. Would have mucked it up, yeah. Yeah. So the bomb uh, apparently made it to the radio immediately. It's just in from WDBX News. There's been an explosion at Babylon, a local gay club, where a political fundraiser was underway tonight. Authorities fear there may be many injuries, possibly fatalities. They say there's no word yet as... Turn around. Uh, So the firemen are in the club. They're on the sidewalk. There's people running around everywhere. There's one thing that I couldn't stand, though, which is the fireman was yelling in the club for everyone to leave the club. It's like, uh, yeah, the bomb went off, 
in a club, I'm getting the fuck out of there. It's like, I don't need to be, wait and be told. It's like, I'm gone. If there's something that happens, I'm going out a window. <laughs> Half of the scaffolding is falling to the ground. You're like, is it safe to leave? Yeah. Should I just stay here? Like, no, Let's just no, finish our gonna... drinks before we, before we bounce. I don't know. I, I, I'm not kidding when I say that. I just about lost it, though, when Brian found Justin. Yes, me. <laughs> lost it. I was like, <gasps> I almost got a little misty-eyed. Because that moment when Brian's just wandering around his destroyed nightclub, he knows that Justin's in there because I think Jennifer out on the street told him to go find him in the club. And then he finds him. And there weren't too many lines there. But that hug and that moment... I was like, oh my God. That's all it needed to be. And I'm not sure why, but I was not at all moved when Brian found Michael being loaded into the ambulance. That just didn't hit me the same way. I don't know why. Well, first of all, I didn't realize it was Michael. Because pissed off at Michael. Yeah. <laughs> That's why. I didn't know it was him. He was like covered in soot. So I'm like, yeah. who's this dude they're loading into the the ambulance? Yeah, there's, there, there should have been like much more of a lead up to such a moment. Yeah, they need like the jaws of life or something to yeah. lift the scaffolding off of Michael in like the club. For for them to like continue to look for Michael and see him under the rubble or something like that. Right. We needed a rescue. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what it is. It needed to be a rescue. So we get to the hospital. There's uh, some nice pacing there from Kelly Macon and no ambient sound, just that heartbeat thump. Little overused for dramatic moment. I actually... Fortunately, it only lasted like five seconds here, though. So yeah. that was good. But there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of like cutting to like black to the moment, to, like I guess to show how hectic and chaotic the situation was. I, I think there are other ways to show that, and I think that's just like an easy easy way around showing this. Well, in the hospital, Ben kind of went batshit crazy and yelled at Debbie. What if I lose? Just keep the crash card handy. What am I gonna do? You're not gonna lose them, and this is not about you. So sit down. Dude, have some compassion. That's Michael's mother. It's like, you don't need to bust out the, this isn't about it. you. Sit down, bitch. <laughs> it's like, damn. It is about her. She is involved. Yes, she does have feelings. Yes, she's going to be wrecked over it. Let her be that. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> What's interesting about this storyline is that the characters have no immediate person to blame. Usually... Queer as Folk drama ends with a very clear antagonist, usually Brian. But here, huh, yeah. nobody can blame Brian for Michael getting blown up. That's what I find interesting is that normally, you know, Debbie would be like, you fucking did this. This is because of you, Brian. No. And they would airplane him, yeah. Yeah, it, but it's not his fault here. It's it's no none of our characters' fault. So I like seeing these characters kind of swirling a bit unsure what to do and unsure how to react. And Ben's the only one that's kind of lashing out. He lashes out at Debbie, but you know, that wasn't because Michael got blown up. Right, exactly. So back at Babylon, uh, Drew Boyd arrives on the scene. Sam Rollins, Channel 7 News here with Drew Boyd. Drew, um, having just come out of the closet, how do you feel about what's happening here? Are you concerned about losing your fans now that you're gay? Right now, I'm more concerned about people losing their lives. Image? <laughs> Good telling off to the reporter that was chasing after yes. Drew. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved his retort, but I, I just would have loved to have seen him just like put that guy on the ground with one hand or something like that. <laughs> just like grab him in right. the face and point, just spike you, it him. Doesn't matter what you, yeah, it doesn't matter what you say to the press to get off your back. Might as well just go for the <laughs> go for the punch. He had a good line though. It was it was a little contrived, yes. but mm, okay, I'm, I'm I'm there. I can get okay with that. Uh, him running to Emmett. He cares. Oh, yeah. That one kind of got me, too. (laughs) I was like, oh. And then the big, the the mother of all the things that got to me is when Brian and Justin meet back up at Babylon. There's a little bit of time shifting here because somehow Brian is able to go from Babylon or go from Australia to Babylon to hospital back to Babylon. And Justin's still there kind of wandering around. But okay, I, I'll let that one go here. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't quite understand that jump. I was a little lost in it, but I was like, I'm gonna go along with it. Everything's chaotic. But this, this totally got to me. I heard what happened. I tried to call you on your cell, but you didn't answer. I was so fucking scared. 
All I could think was, please don't let anything happen to him. Having Brian say, I love you to Justin, not once, but twice, is something that we've been waiting for since season one. Mm -hmm. And it took in a, just a terrible act of violence to get there. I'm kind of okay with that, though. I think there were many other avenues to get to this moment, though, other than like blowing up the bar. But the way that life kind of hung in the balance for an entire 50 minute episode really made this pretty compelling. Uh, I think it would have been great to, to hear that line and then cut to black and end the entire series right then and there with all the uncertainty that the future has in place for like Michael, who's on his death bad. Emmett and Drew just did their little hug out. Ted's uh, husband material ran away. Brian says to Justin, I love you. Boom. Series over. That's gutsy, right? Yeah. That's like a Sopranos caliber ending. <laughs> but we've got three more episodes to, to drone on about this. Yeah, I've never understood the need for series to always want to feel like they have to tie up every single loose end. I mean, I guess that, that, that that's there for, I guess, the fans. They have some type of closure. But also be consistent with what the show is. Well, I think this was the closure, though, right? For everything that we needed to know about Brian and Justin smart viewers don't need to see them buy a home in the country and right get and be married. married and have 2.5 children and right i like the smart move which is they said it it's over now yeah. we can fill in the rest it yeah. can be up to us how we want these characters to live on in our heads but no we've got three more hours <laughs> to go with yeah. this i did have some criticism about this bombing though as much as i like the way that this was all put together i had some problems with it. I have notes, as you like to say. Mm -hmm. So Michael is seriously injured. There are dead people in the club, but all of the other main characters escape with just dirty clothes. I think other people needed to get hurt in this too. Yes. That is, that is my big critique of it and that it loses the drama when something this large happens, but you know, for the most part, everybody's okay. A whole bunch of people that we yeah. don't know died, but... <laughs> right. I mean, we even see them putting sheets over bodies. We see people, hang, you know, clearly killed in the rafters and things like that. But yeah, the, considering this is near the end of the series, I, thought, I was like, mm, I think if this is going to be an opportunity to lose some important people, you know, are some of our main people, this is going to be that time. I mean, it reminded me, like, that used to be such an, an event on television when, like, beloved characters, like, died. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? Like, I, I will never forget, there's, uh, if you know that the medical show ER, that was one of my favorites growing up. And there was an episode where Carter and Lucy are stabbed by one of their psych patients. And the drama that happened, like, one, one hell of a cliffhanger, because you see, Carter getting stabbed by the guy. And as he falls, he looks under the bed and he sees that Lucy's been stabbed too. And everyone's like, oh my God, he got her too. And then it's like the whole drama of them leading up to when they're found and then everyone trying to save their lives. And then spoiler alert for a show that's you know been off the air for 10 years, Lucy died. But to know that you lost someone that important, right? like that was heart wrenching. So it would have been nice if queerest folk followed through with something like that. Yeah, it needs some like, collateral really damage. Of, yeah, really kind of hurt, like, to be honest, kind of hurt us to, to actually really lose someone that we've invested, you know, five seasons into. Yeah, I mean, Ben at least needs to have his arm in a sling. He needs to have some bandages on. Everybody needs to be beat up, but they were just Some dirty. sort of maiming would be nice. <laughs> Another piece of criticism was Brian's hysteria over donating blood. He's lost a lot of blood. Before we can do anything, he's going to need a transfusion. But what the fuck are you waiting for? He's AB negative. We're short on his type, so we're checking out the hospitals. Okay. I'm O negative. That's the universal donor, right? Are you gay? What's that got to do with anything? You know, we, well, we can't give blood because of HIV. I don't have HIV. It doesn't matter. Gays are considered to be too high of a risk. Well, what about all the straight studs and bitches who fuck around and don't use protection? I mean, you'd take their blood, right? It's an FDA regulation. Right. I don't give a shit. 
Brian, Brian, Brian. Take my blood, motherfucker. Brian, look. You couldn't keep even fewer straight. Cancer. That just seemed a little out of place. I, I get that we're supposed to see Brian desperately trying to save Michael's life, but that plot device is overused in screenwriting in two ways. The first one is there's always, my buddy's injured, take my blood to save his life. And then the second one is gay people can't donate blood. Mm -hmm. So, and it just seemed a little, that one seemed a little spoon fed to us. It's like, yes, okay, we got it, next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, last piece of criticism, which you started to touch on was, um, and fans are just going to light me up for this, but from a purely storytelling perspective, Michael should have been killed in that blast. Yeah. I'm not a fan of shows where all these characters just emerged unscathed. Happily ever after doesn't work real well in storytelling, unless it's You've Got Mail or Kate and Leopold, then it's perfect. But <laughs> in this show, somebody has to die. Like a main character needs to be yeah, killed. Needs to go. But spoiler alert, Michael survives. Did you ever <sighs> doubt that? That's the that's the Not real for question. A second. Exactly. Nobody really thought that he was gonna be killed. Everybody knew he was gonna survive. We'll be back with more still queerest folk. So let's talk uh, real quick about what is really the only runner in the show, and that's Melanie and Lindsay's story. Because this one uh, evolves in a way that is great. Uh, they start out the episode uh, in the kitchen. I call this the kitchen horror show. Lindsay is chopping vegetables in the kitchen with this gigantic knife. But it's intercut with scenes of that rapey hookup scene, Ugh. complete with the like those Lindsay screams and yelps that confuse us so much. It, it really seemed like a slasher film. Yeah. When this happened, I was like, oh, what's is happening? Is triggering? Or so like, yeah, there's there's a whole so a whole bunch of business with that that I was not a fan of. Yeah, it's it's kind of another clue that that hookup scene last episode was just poorly acted and directed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm just not a fan of that. But I see where they're going, and I took it at face value that, okay, that was a hookup. I'll believe it, because you tell me I have to believe it that way. <laughs> Then it turns into a, a, like the moving or not moving on piece. I'm still into this, this thing. It's like, are we rekindling or are we like moving apart? And this one seems very real to me. It's, it's like this slow burn breakup. As long as we don't have any more of those rapey sex scenes, I, I'm really cool with this story. I like the way that we just don't know where they're headed because sometimes Melanie is outdating but she's still talking about Lindsay. We see that Lindsay is still like, wait, I want to get back with her. So I'm going to like hook up with her. And then there's like all these little incongruities with it that are really, really good. Like Corinne um, gets the boot. Corinne. I know you don't have to tell no, me. It's not you, I, I swear. I know that too. It's Lindsay. <laughs> hey, come on. You don't need a special team of investigators to figure out what's what. I love that woman, though. Uh, yeah, she, I mean, she, I mean, she was the most perceptive. Yeah, she's like, yeah. she's like, oh no, I absolutely, I am not surprised at all because here are all the, <laughs> here's all the evidence to show that you were clearly not over it. Yeah, she's had and enough, okay. and she's just out. <laughs> she's just like, yeah. I'm done with you. <laughs> that's why I love her. Uh, it's interesting though that Melanie. Uh, more than Lindsay is moving on in scenes with Lindsay, but then apparently can't shut up about her when she's with Corinne. Mm -hmm. I thought that that was a little like weird because whenever they're together, we had gotten these hints that Melanie was like, okay, we're moving on. And then, you know, she's the one out dating. She's the one having tongue kisses on the porch. She's the one that is out living her life. And so, uh, I don't know, I, it was just a little bit confusing there. Yeah. Uh, then there's the, uh, what I called the you don't bring me flowers moment. And I melted when Melanie came home with those flowers for Lindsay. And Lindsay was selling the house. 
<laughs> I was like, oh, oops, misread that situation. But Lindsay kind of summed it up perfectly, though. So you, you want to sell? I was under the impression we both did. So I say we stop talking about it and get on with our lives. Nice flowers. Yeah, I thought they'd brighten up the house. Then the big, uh, big moment in this episode is the post-bomb uh, event at the Peterson Marcus house. This was some out-fucking-standing writing. Lindsay comes into the room holding Gus, who, by the way, is like five years old. So that kid's got to weigh, like, what, 40 pounds? Mm-hmm. She, like, held that kid the whole time. It's like, okay. <laughs> She's like, I am in role of mother. Uh, the way an extreme event can bring people back together or bring them even closer than before was really written well here. And this scene was just so loaded. Melanie and Lindsay just had a close call with death. JR's father is clinging to life. Mm -hmm. They are on very unsteady footing with their own relationship, but being close together with each other and with their children made for this really perfect moment. I was like totally digging this scene. It's sort of, you know what, it reminds me of that of basically the Ross and Rachel track and friends where it's like, we know they're going to get together and you spend 10 seasons of no, they're not. No, they're not. Maybe they are. No, they're not. Maybe they're, and you know what they are after 10 years, you're like, you could have saved me heaps of time. I would have been more interested if it's like, I still deeply care for you, but I'm still going to be with like Corinne. Thank you. Like, you know, just to, to throw them back together like that was an easy way out. Um, True, but I loved it. <laughs> I love the have happy it. lesbians. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have it. Well, I, I I think that this was that moment of closure, right? I think at this moment, their ambiguity in their relationship is over. They've kind of admitted that, yeah, we're going to be together. And maybe that's mm -hmm. what, what I liked about it was finally this back and forth story is is done with and they're really going to be who we've always thought they were, which is these kind, loving parents and we get to see JR and uh, what's his name? Gus <laughs> um, become the brother and sister that they had always wanted to be. Okay. I loved it. Okay. Tops and bottoms for this episode. What was your top, Matt? I love the bombing. As much <laughs> wow. As I, I love the bombing. I mean, it was for a show that was like wrapping up. What a way to lead into what would be the, you Just know, blow up the, the finale sets. of it. To like, yeah, to blow shit up. <laughs> I mean, that's great. So, I mean, especially because it's such an iconic place. This is the first place we ever saw. This is the first place we ever went to when you start the series. It's the place you keep going to. And then to have it be taken away in one of the most violent ways possible. And then I think also what's coming on top of that is we have so many real life events that it really makes what we always would have assumed was a safe space for our characters show how unsafe it was mm. or like how, like, you know, like, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the exact vibe that so many of us felt after the pulse shooting that we always thought that we were in our safe havens when we were going to these gay bars in our gay neighborhoods. And then to see when that would see and to have that feeling of when it's taken away. So, that's what I'm coming at with this episode. And so now it's like, okay, I'm very much invested in what happens for the rest of the series because are they going to catch the person who did this? Are they going to, you know, defeat Proposition 14? Because now you've just made martyrs out of everybody. You like people were willing to kill you for this. What are you going to do about it? And it'll be interesting to, or it'll be very, it'll be great to watch characters rise up in this kind of moment. So that's what's my top. You know, something, um, that you said about that safe space uh, reminded me that when I was living in London, there was a bombing of a gay bar and it was by uh, like a neo-Nazi or something like that. And it was kind of done for the same reasons that are playing out at Babylon. It's a, the anti-Proposition 14 person is bombing the bar. And I remember that. It was like the late 90s. And and it was exactly that feeling that you talked about. It's like a, a space that you believed was safe and where you were with people that strongly related to yourself was suddenly not safe. And that's a, a good thing to touch on in this drama, especially with Babylon, like you were saying, because everybody is drawn back there at some point or another. Though it did get me thinking, maybe this should have blown up the diner 
instead. Mm. Lots of opportunities to blow up various stuff there. Yeah. Uh, so my top yeah. was uh, that scene that I just talked about at the Peterson Marcus home. Excellent work by Del Shores writing it and Kelly Macon directing it. Full stop. That is the scene to end all scenes. Next. <laughs> <laughs> What's your bottom? Uh, I'm going to say that my bottom is, I mean, considering there was not a whole lot else to like latch on to in this episode because so much of it was focused on the bombing of, of Babylon, I was going to say it's just Justin's piss poor attitude towards <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer and Tuck. Leave them be. They're cute. They're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Let them have their moment. God. I wonder if we'll get a sex Grow scene up. of those two. I would watch that. Mm. <laughs> so my bottom was uh, Ted and Lewis. Uh, <laughs> okay. This was just a setup for Ted to have a full-on guilt trip story coming up because he was the one that sent Michael to get the water, and then Michael gets blown up. That story in itself is weak, but I wish mm. they could have at least teed it up better than Ted's improbable date with an agoraphobic husband hunter. Yeah, I mean, if anything, Lewis should have been blown up too in order to further complicate Ted's guilt. Oh, that would have been like really tragic. The first time he really goes out into a crowd and it's bombed and he dies because of that. Yeah, so I, I just felt like there was a number of loose ends with this particular story. Yeah. It just seemed very forced, like, oh, we have to find a way to give Ted a guilt trip over this. I know, let's have him do a husband hunt and let's have him have an agoraphobic husband. And yeah. let's use that. <laughs> this has been episode 10 of season five. I love you. Next time on Still Queer as Folk, Brian reevaluates his priorities in the aftermath of the bombing. Michael continues on the long and painful road to recovery with Ben and Hunter at his bedside. Yay! <laughs> Elsewhere, a vigil for the bombing victims ends in chaos. That will be episode 11 of season five, and it's called Fucking Revenge. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Still Queer's Focus, a production of Slightly Unbalanced. Matt Dominguez wrote and performed the show with me tonight. New episodes every other week for season five. Still Queer's Focus was made with love in Chicago.